uh, we're going to be looking at the part of Jonah that we probably all know, um, which is, has to do with the big fish. I'm going to start with the story, though. It was my uh, sophomore year at UND, so this was a galaxy far, far away and a long, long time ago. Um, I had aced my first three semesters at UND, and I was on my way to a fourth 4.0 semester. I, that was my thing. I was good at grades. Um, I, uh, all the doors were open for me to continue on the track that I had started on, which was going to maybe pre-med track or maybe pre-PT track. I didn't really have any trouble with any of those hard weeding out classes, although I had plenty of friends who did get weeded out and felt like they had to change their major. And all of that looked good, but I was kind of uncomfortable with the direction I was headed. I, I started to have doubts about was this really what I should do, which was confusing because I knew how hard it was and I had other friends that really wanted to do and head where I was heading but were not able to do that. I had been following Christ for really for myself for about 18 months. My freshman year, I would say, is when I began to uh, partway through my freshman year, so maybe it wasn't quite 18 months, really seriously consider what it meant to follow Jesus and try to do it myself and have a desire to do it myself. Would Jesus ask me to make that big of a change, to change sort of the trajectory of my vocational future? That's really the question I was asking. And it felt a little bit crazy to throw away my good grades and do something different than that. I was in the midst of a battle to surrender my future, my vocational future to God, and little did I know, probably when I started having these struggles um, as I was heading into that fourth semester, um, so it would have been right about now, um, as I come back after winter break, um, that I was going to face a physical and a spiritual storm uh, later that year. Here's my sermon in a sentence. I'll finish the story later, by the way. Sermon in a sentence. While surrendering to God can feel like certain death, it is the way to God's rescuing grace. While surrendering to God can feel, that's an important word, it isn't certain death, but it can feel like certain death, It is the way to God's rescuing grace. This is week two of Jonah. We've sort of subtitled this series, The Prodigal Prophet, kind of in reference to the story of the prodigal son, which you might know. Um, Jonah actually plays the part of both of the sons in this story. Let's read Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 4. By the way, if you're looking for Jonah, it's really close to the end of the Old Testament. So if you know where the New Testament starts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Pretty much got to flip about 20 pages back from math, the beginning of Matthew, and you'll find Jonah there in the very end of the New T- Old Testament, right before the New Testament, in the section called the Minor Prophets. But here's what Jonah 1.4 says. <clears throat> we, we talked about 1 through 3 last week, which is Jonah got a call from God, and Jonah went the opposite direction. Jonah's run from God. You can listen to that sermon online if you want to. By the way, you might not be able to, if you're trying to worship at home, I'm sorry, um, we're having technical issues, so you may have to just be listening to my voice on the, on the sermon uh, recording later because I'm not sure that the, the live stream is working today. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. 
so this is a this is a really bad storm. To break the boat apart is the sailors, the experienced sailors that Jonah was riding with were concerned that the ship might break apart. It's not just a little bit of wind, not just the waves get a little bit bigger. This is really intense. Here's how intense it was. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid and they each cried out to his God. Probably each of these sailors had a God that was relative to their city or maybe their household or more than that. And that's the God that they were probably crying out to. This is a pagan sort of pantheistic, lots of different gods. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. So they were very desperate. The only reason they're on the ocean is to carry their cargo from one place to the next, either because they're getting paid to carry the cargo or they're going to sell it for a profit wherever they're going to get. And they said, we're going to die. Let's just even throw out that to maybe we'll live. So they're all in. This is a bad storm. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel Maybe he thought he could get as far away from the face of God as he was possible. As you know, we're on the run from the face of God. How low can I get? Maybe face down in the very back corner. I don't know. And had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. So the sailors are terrified, other translations will say. They're doing whatever they can to save their lives and Jonah's, throwing basically their income, their livelihood overboard in order to possibly survive And Jonah's in a deep sleep. Now that phrase, in a deep sleep, is the same phrase that if you know the Bible a little bit, at the very beginning of the Bible, there's a story of creation where God created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And before he creates woman, he says, God put Adam into a deep sleep, and then he removed a rib from Adam and created the woman out out of the rib that he took from the man. So this deep sleep that Jonah's in is Probably kind of like being put under for a surgery. He is out. Maybe he's having a sleep of despair. Maybe he's having a sleep of dejection, a sleep, if I could just forget what's going on. We don't know exactly. This storm is as we find out later in the story, and we're going to find out, is really God's discipline getting after Jonah. God's still chasing after Jonah. Sometimes people that we love uh, and care about are willing to go to pretty significant lengths to help us, and they might be, it might not feel good to us when they're trying to help us because we're really off track. And that's the first point. Here's some lessons from God's discipline. Number one, God's discipline coming is a sign of his love. God's discipline coming is a sign of his love. If you ever get disciplined by God, he allows or sends hard things into your life because he's trying to get your attention. Just remember, he's doing or allowing or sending that because he cares about you. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says this, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. Don't despise God's instruction. Don't loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline is, the next part of that verse, I should finish it, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. 
The, discipline is a loving parent in this context. Uh, you would be the child. God would be the parent. Uh, a loving parent really cares deeply about their kids. Introducing corrective pain into a child's life for the good of the child. Out of a committed, deep love for that child to grow up to have a full, wise, and flourishing life. You probably had experiences. I for sure have had experiences like Russ shared this morning. That was loving discipline that he received. He is telling it here right now, and we can tell that he learned wisdom from that experience and probably others. We've probably all had that. You know that, you probably know this, whether you have kids or not, that children left to their own devices, and I can mean this kind of device or all other devices, will not find fullness, wisdom, or flourishing. Very unlikely that they will. Left to their own devices, typically what happens is they spiral into foolishness and selfishness without correction. That's typically what happens. Proverbs 22.15 says that a little stronger, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a youth. A rod of discipline will separate the foolishness from his heart. That's at Proverbs 22. So the pain of discipline separates foolishness from your heart. I needed this as a young man. My roommate, his name was Aaron. I have a son named Aaron, and the reason I have a son named Aaron is because I had a roommate named Aaron who had a big impact in my life. Um, God, one of the impacts was that God used Aaron as a source of discipline. Um, he, uh, he had, uh, the reason he was in North Dakota is his mom had roots in North Dakota, but his dad was Italian. Aaron had a pretty robust personality. And uh, he was not afraid to say whatever he thought. If I left part of my mess on his side of the room, I would know that I did that pretty quickly. At times it made me mad when he corrected me. Things like messes in dorm rooms was, were little things, but there were bigger things that he pointed out. Things where, Pat, you say that you're following Christ, but let me tell you what I see in your life that's off base. I didn't like hearing that, but I knew I needed to hear it, and I grew to love him for it and appreciate him about appreciate appreciate his courage that he had to speak into my life. I wasn't really one that was easy to have truth spoken to. Pretty, pretty defensive, but he did it anyways. God's willing to go to great lengths to get your attention, to get my attention. He's, he's willing to send a storm. He's willing to send a great fish. He's willing to bring loving, corrective discipline into your life. He'll do any of that or more because he cares about you. He cares about me and he wants to. Here's the second point that we're going to get to in a minute. He actually wants to give us a chance to surrender to his love, which would be the same as surrendering to his will, really. Let's jump back into the story here. We'll make a few observations before we get to our second point. In verse 6, the captain approaches Jonah this is the captain of the ship who prays to pagan God. He approaches Jonah and says, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. I think it's more than a little ironic that the prophet of God is being told to pray by a pagan sea captain. 
That's a little ironic. We don't know exactly why Jonah wasn't praying. He was apathetic. He was just deeply committed to getting as far away from God's face as possible. But I'll tell you this. The text does not say that Jonah prays. Verse 7 doesn't say he prays. It just moves on to the the sailors are going to roll dice to see whose fault it was, which was not uncommon in that world. Actually, even in the Old Testament, there are times and places where casting lots or rolling dice or flipping a coin are God-ordained ways to make a decision. Not like, should I marry this person or not? Not that kind of decision. I would not encourage that. The Bible doesn't. But perhaps like, should we go this way or that way? Or should we choose this, this, this to eat or that to eat? You know, like today, practical application, you have an argument. One kid wants to go to this restaurant. One kid wants to go to the other restaurant. Let's let God decide and flip a coin. That kind of thing. So they're trying to cast lots. Whose fault is it? Verse 8 says this. Then the sailors said to him, because guess whose lot it was fell to? Surprise, surprise, Jonah. You got the short straw. You got the short lot. It's your fault. Okay, Jonah, tell us. Who is to blame for this trouble you're in? What is your business? What are you up to? And where are you from? What is your country? And what people are you from? Commentators have noticed if you look at those questions, you could make a very strong case that all of those are identity questions. What's your business? What's your purpose in life? What are you up to? What's your work? What's your, what's your mission? Where do you come from? Who are your people? What's your family from? They really point to Jonah's guilt because we know what Jonah is. We know where he comes from. Jonah is a prophet of God running from the call of God. Again, we don't really hear answers to the question. Um, but here's what it says. He does say. He does, he, does get, he does give an answer. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear. You worship the God who made the sea, and we're in a storm that's about to rip our boat apart. I guess we understand why the lot felt to you, Jonah. What in the world should we do? Really what they asked is, what have you done? We're going to go down with you because you did something. You worship the God who created the sea. The men knew, Jonah must have mentioned this to him in passing, that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. They know, they know that they have their man. He worships the God who made the land and the sea, probably a greater deity than the ones that they were worshiping. And it's pretty interesting to compare the, the, the worshipful fear of the Lord response of the sailors to Jonah's. Jonah's pretty much apathetic, and the sailors are like deeply impacted. Again, fairly ironic that the prophet of the Lord is kind of getting shown up in his response to God by Sailors who probably haven't even heard the name of his God. What should we do to keep this from getting worse, they ask. Verse 12 goes on to say, he says, he must have heard from God somehow, or I'm not really sure. This is the right answer. I don't, we don't really know how Jonah got this answer, but it is the right answer because as we hear, and we'll find out in the rest of the story, this is the right thing to do, even though it sounds like the wrong thing to do. He answered, pick me up and throw me into the sea, 
so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Now, it could be that Jonah is actually showing some compassion because he, does, he knows that if he is thrown overboard, that maybe God will have mercy on the rest of the boat and those sailors will live. That could be that he's showing compassion. We don't really know for sure. There's some signs that that might be the case. There's also other signs that that might not be the case. Could be the case that he's just resigned to like, okay, I guess God's going to take my life now. I've been running long enough because... Have you guys ever seen uh, The Greatest Catch? You know, the Alaskan fishermen up north, the crab fishermen and some of those storms they face. Or have you ever seen the movie The Perfect Storm about a nor'easter that hit the, the Atlantic coast years ago? Just imagine that kind of a scene. Big boats being tossed around like they're matchboxes by these waves. Probably something like that. Throw me overboard. The sailors don't want to do it. These, uh, these, these sailors who worship, we don't know how many different gods, they don't want to sacrifice human life in order to appease the god of the sea. They think that must be wrong. So they try harder to try to make it through this storm that God has sent. Have you ever done that? God says, do this. It seems pretty crazy. You're in the middle of a storm and you decide to try harder to make it through on your own and you make less ground. That's what's happening to the sailors here. Sort of another little mini lesson that we could find there for ourselves. The storm gets worse even though they're trying harder. Maybe you've experienced that before. Because you're reluctant, they are reluctant to do what God has told the prophet, but then finally in verse 15, here's what we read. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. We'll read the rest of the verse in a minute. Here's the second lesson from God's discipline. Surrender to God can seem like certain death. You just got thrown overboard into the perfect storm. Let's just say 30-foot waves. A person doesn't survive that. People don't survive that. Especially they got nothing to hold on to. Surrender to God can seem, to God's discipline can seem crazy or dangerous. It can seem and feel like we're going to die. There is unavoidable risk to surrendering to God. So my Jonah storm hit a few months after I began to wonder if I should be doing something different with my vocational future. It was a pivotal year in my life. I had been following Christ for a while, and I felt by the end of the winter break that God was asking me to spend a part of my summer on a mission trip overseas. I was involved with a group called Campus Crusade. It's called Crew now. And I... uh, I did. I made plans to spend six or seven weeks in East Asia with crew. And I needed to raise about $3,500 of support. That sounds like a little bit of money to me, actually, today. I'm in a different stage of life. Um, But I will tell you that $3,500 in those days covered a full year of my tuition. So I don't know what it is today. I think it's maybe more like $15,000, like five times that. So inflation has has gone pretty fast, but tuition inflation has gone way faster. Just so you know, side note. But so just imagine, a year, I have to raise a year's worth of tuition. 
I send my, my letters out, support letters out. They train you how to raise support, sent my support letters out. And uh, about two weeks later, the whole city evacuated, which was where most of my support. It's this 1997. And that was the semester that we got flooded. Um, if you were here, you would know we're in this building partly because of the flood, because this building, probably up to about the fourth step out there, when you come in t- inside here, was full of water um, by about April 25th or so. I can't remember the dates. But all of my letters were likely on like your kitchen countertop, wherever you store your letters, <laughs> or in your office in a stack, and the people weren't there. And then they came back a few weeks later, and more mail probably got stuck on top of those letters as piles on the berms raised higher and higher of rotten and mildewed and mud-covered garbage out of everyone's basement and sheetrock that got pulled out. And I needed, I think I needed my full support by the end of May, because I know I was overseas in June, I'm not sure. I had, to, I had to ask, would I surrender my plans, what I thought God was asking me to do, as I bobbed around in the uncertainty of, can I go? Am I able, going to be able to go or not? Really, the aftermath of a great flood. <clears throat> Here's what uh, the rest of verse 15 says. They seized and picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. They threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. There's, there's other places in the scripture where it happens. Jesus does a miracle like this. He's asleep in a boat. The disciples are trying really hard to get across the Sea of Galilee, and they're not making very much headway, and they're really afraid. And then Jesus wakes up, and he speaks a word, and it stops. Similar. It's a very similar miracle that happens. Let's read the rest. Verse 16 Here's the sailors' response. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They were responsive, like worship, it seems like, of this God, like, wow. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the verse that we probably maybe don't know, but we know the content of it. Jonah and the great fish sometimes send Jonah and the whale, because we assume that if there was a fish today that could do that, it would be a whale. We don't really know exactly what it was. Pretty much all we know about Jonah, but I hope you're getting that picture that the profound message of Jonah is way bigger than the fish. The message is way bigger than the fish that swallowed Jonah. Here's the third lesson from God's discipline. God's loving rescue comes after you surrender to him. God's loving rescue comes after you surrender to him. Even the rescue seems like certain death, though, isn't it? He's got to surrender to that as well. I'm sure Jonah didn't think it was a rescue at the time. Sometimes God's rescue for us does not seem like rescue at the time. And it's not until later that we realize, oh, God was rescuing me in that. I thought I was going to get swallowed up, but actually he was saving me. Jonah had finally surrendered to God. I don't even know if it was totally his choice exactly. He didn't jump over the side of the boat. He sure could have. I don't know why he needed to get thrown over. Somehow he did. Maybe it was just desperation. Maybe he was at the end of his rope. Maybe he thought, well, there's nothing else I can do. I don't know. Usually we have to get to the end of our rope before we surrender. 
we usually have to be done trying. I can't do it anymore before we totally give up. We don't have to do that, but oftentimes it's true. Would I surrender my plans to what God wants? I could say all these letters, there's no way these people are going to be in a position to help. They have houses to rebuild, so many other concerns on their mind. This is, is this not logical to just say I should just stay? Um, my, I didn't have this, my actually, where we were living, we were in one of the very few places on the west side of the interstate that wasn't deeply impacted by the flood. So I didn't have a home, my parents' home to help. That wasn't a situation for me. What would I do? So here's what, it, if I were to continue following God, here's what I would have to do. I would have to make some really uncomfortable phone calls and visits to ask, do you remember that letter? Because people wouldn't remember that letter under the pile of whatever they had to get through. I didn't really, wasn't really excited about that, but I did do it. And here's what happened. Uh, I can say this. I wasn't a very humble man. I was 20 years old. I was not humble. I was at what I call the peak of pride in the life of a man. Sorry if you're 19 or 20, but that's just what is reality. <clears throat> Were you about that age? Maybe a little less than that, Russ. Yeah, within a couple of years, say 16 to 22, that's kind of like those six years. God is usually working to try to help humble a man, help him to become humble, and he's resisting it. <clears throat> but I'll say looking back, I was, I am so surprised and overwhelmed that people in the midst of A lot of tragedy to them or maybe people they cared. Actually wanted. They wanted to give to help a young man who was trying to follow Christ do what God called him to do and go overseas to another country and share Christ in another country. Like people wanted to do that. And I did raise all the support that I needed. I didn't. God did. Um, if I were to depend on self-sufficiency, I would just say, don't bother people at this time. You know, there, you could have said, I could have interpreted, well, if God wants me to go, he'll just send the money in. And that, that's all right. God might have led me in that. He didn't. He said, I want you to go, and I want you to get on the phone <laughs> and go visit people and ask if they want to partner with you in this. I surrendered to God. I was really uncomfortable. God brought all that I needed and a little bit more. I was able to pass a little bit on to some other teammates that needed a little bit more. God's loving rescue, friends, it comes after surrender to God, not before. It always comes after. And surrender feels like certain death. It can. It can feel like I'm going to die or maybe this dream's going to die or this hope's going to die in order for me to surrender it to God. A key verse for me in those days was found in Romans 12, verse 1. And I I don't have a specific memory of it, but I know I came out of my college years with this as a key verse. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And what I was learning... With that instance, my, my Jonah storm surrender option, what I was learning was that a living sacrifice will probably have to surrender again and again. 
I know I heard a speaker say this, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's how we can be. Surrender isn't a one-time thing. Now, you can surrender your Christ one time and you are his forever, but then you have to keep surrendering to Christ to stay in line with his will, to be surrendered to his love. That's what I was learning. I learned that my sophomore year, and I've been surrendering ever since, and although at that point, that felt like the craziest thing, the hardest thing I ever had to do in order to surrender doesn't even come close anymore. 25 years later, there's been way, way, way bigger things that I've had to give to God, harder things that felt a lot more like death in order to surrender to his love. At times it has felt like I'm risking my soul, my heart, my life in order to surrender to God. It may feel that way. Here's my sermon in a sentence. While surrendering to God can feel like certain death, it is the way to God's rescuing grace. It's the way that we experience it. It's the only way that we can. Really, we can experience God's grace without surrendering, but it's just sort of like a tiny little taste on the tip of a toothpick. If you really want to taste what God's grace is like, it will require you to surrender. And that will sometimes feel like death or insanity, what he's asking you to do. We're going to close with the song. If you guys want to stand while the worship team comes up here, um, we'll close in worship to God. This closing song is entitled Beautiful One because God, Jesus, our Savior, is the beautiful one. We aren't. Part of the time, part of the reason that we don't surrender as quickly or as uh, responsively to God's request that we surrender is that we actually think we know better. We think we're the beautiful one, the all-wise, all-knowing one. We actually have things worked out in our lives, and we're not really willing to yield or surrender or give ourselves up to the one who really is the beautiful one. So maybe, I don't know where you're at today, maybe there's something in your life that you're in a battle with. Maybe you've been like turning your face away from God in some way, This song can be a response for you. It can be a God moment. It can be a moment like I had a moment in my sophomore year when I knew I needed to surrender to God what he was asking me to do. If that's the case, I pray that you would respond to him. Let's pray and then we'll sing this song. Jesus, thank you. You are good. You are beautiful. You have our best interests in mind. And even when you ask us to do hard things that we would never dream of doing, a day or a week before you ask us, we can trust that you have our good in mind. Lord, even when you send hard things our way or allow storms our way or send storms our way, we can trust that you are a loving Father. And when we're experiencing discipline from you, that you still love us. And it's because you love us that you're sending those hard things because you want to get our attention. You want us to surrender to your love, to give up our way and take up your way. Give us the courage to do that, Lord. It takes courage to do that. It is not easy. Give us courage. Give anyone here who's in the midst of one of those wrestles right now, give them courage to surrender to you. In your name we pray. Amen.